When you grow up in a very alternative, open place, when you go and get exposed to the real world outside of that bubble, it can be kind of shocking about how conservative the real world can be. When you do go through a hard thing like a natural disaster, I think there is a value that's gained in a potential to be able to go out and help because there's less shock and more experience with just being able to say, okay, what, what do we need to do now to save lives? Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Kirby. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we're recording this conversation walking around Abney Park Cemetery in Stoke Newington. So that's what the background sounds are. The birds, beautiful birds. Yeah, it's a lovely sunny day. And people putting flowers down on the graves, which is beautiful. That is beautiful, although that makes me sort of like worry that I'm going to walk around like talking really loudly (laughs) in someone's intimate moment. But that is part of the intimate moment. No, You're well, sharing it with them. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, definitely, like, that's the interesting thing about this park. And it's a beautiful place to walk around, but it's also a cemetery. Yeah. Um, so it's a kind of interesting combination of places. There's a lot of history here. There's a lot of people that, from, especially from Islington, that are buried here from the last 200, 300 years that have incredible stories behind them. A lot of creatives, actually, and, and revolutionaries that are buried here. Yeah, so no, absolutely. I think there's an energy that comes out of this park for that reasoning. Well, a lot of the cemeteries in, in London are like that as well, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of history here. Let's hope we live up to the, live up to the standards. standards yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've only got one bar of battery, so let's keep our fingers crossed. I may sort of get nervous along the line and start uh, saving it occasionally. Um, so, yeah, the first question I ask everybody is how do you know me? I know you through the Spark Storytelling Circle. I have been a fan since 2008 of live storytelling but I wasn't brave enough to actually get on stage until 2014. I actually had to hype myself up, and I was really excited to find out about Spark because we only have the moth, really, in New York, and it's so competitive. You have people that go there. Hello, puppy. (laughs) You have people that go to the moth, but they're professionals, and it's very competitive. They'll have 60 names put in a hat, and only 5 to 10 stories get names get taken out so I went for years and never actually had my name taken out of the hat before so when I went to the spark it was because it's a smaller scale events and it's non-competitive which is great yeah we have no so, hat no 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 anyone who wants to tell a story as long as we've got time in the night can tell a story it's beautiful so that was kind of my I, I knew that going into it and I was like okay now it's time to do this and it was terrifying the first time I got on stage I was so scared <laughs> I was so scared but it actually ended up being one of my most magical nights of my life the first time that I came out to the spark because all right so in 2008 the first storytelling event that I went to see I saw Elna Baker perform. She just got me hooked on it. And from there on out, I always, I listened to anything she created. You know, she was involved in Time Out on a few different things. And she just, I just became like this fangirl for Elna completely. And I had some friends that were going to come out to me with this first event to give me like moral support. And they bailed on me. And I was like, I'm still going to go do this. I'm going to go by myself and I'm doing this. I'm getting on stage finally. And I got on stage and I told my story and it went really great. And I walked off. And Elna was in the room. And I freaked out. And I was like, I pulled her up on Google and I was asking the people I was sitting with, I was like, is that her? Is that her? And I wouldn't have recognized her except for the fact that I had just like a month earlier randomly started following her Instagram. Because I'd never, since 2008, I hadn't actually seen her face. I've always listened to her stories and listened to her work with This American Life and all that stuff. And I went up to her and I was like, are you Elna Baker? And she was like, yes, can I sit with you? I don't know anybody. And it was just like the gods storytelling gods were shining light. I was like, yes, please. And now she's a wonderful friend and she's, oh, wow. she's an awesome person. But that was my first, my first night getting into storytelling. It was kind of accumulation of years. And I was actually listening to one of Elna's stories on my way there to psych myself <laughs> up. And then she got on stage and she told the second part to the story that I saw her tell in 2008 that she had never told before. Right. Which was just like incredible for me. So right. since then I was hooked and... Yeah, yeah floating so that, around the circle now. <laughs> and that night, that night was a night at Hackney, which, which I hosted. Yep. And I, I had a sort of, I guess, a similar situation to that of like, Elna was telling her story on stage, and I was like, "Hang on, <laughs> I know, I know who that is." <laughs> then afterwards, you know, it was everybody found out who she was and sort of talked to her. I didn't sort of like have my wits about me as much as I would have liked to have gone. Oh my God, Elna, come on my show, <laughs> and I think you're amazing, and all of that stuff. I was kind of like shell shocked. I, I guess Elna Baker's not a name that my listeners are necessarily going to recognise, but 
and if you know storytelling, you'll know that name. Elna is part of the uh, This American Life team, as, yep. as, and she was partly there to sort of like establish a little bit of a relationship, and so they're keeping an eye on our stories and looking out for one that maybe one day will feature on This American Life. Who knows? I know it's just so exciting and being part of the group and knowing. I mean, that's obviously being a storyteller. You know, attempting learning how to be a storyteller. Like This American Life is kind of one of those holy grails yeah. for storytelling. So for sure. yeah, it was really it was an exciting night, and that was kind of the first night that got me hooked and I don't know I always find out when there's synergy in the universe and my life is very weird like that it's not the first time things like that have happened before to me but it's the universe if you just trust it has a really good way of setting you up I find yeah. it's just a matter of like convincing myself in the lower more duller moments to just continue to believe that to go forward and build so that yeah it was a great night yeah, that was the first night that we met and then we see each other often now quite often because you come to yeah. quite a lot of spark events and in fact you've kind of graduated from being just somebody who tells stories not just not to say that that is a, a, a low rung yeah. but you've kind of also worked with us uh, to produce a night uh, of refugee stories that we yeah. did you were the person who sort of brought that to our table and uh, we're, we're all very happy that it that it's on our table we're still raising funds uh, for refugees so I know, it's uh, when great. this comes out uh, if people want to help to support Refuaid and what they're doing, go over to uh, stories.co.uk and uh, the, there's a link there for people to donate to our fund because we believe in uh, in hearing everyone's stories and uh, refugee stories are particularly important to hear. Especially um, right now with the climate and everything that's happening, there's so many misconceptions around what a refugee is or you know the people that you're dealing with. And I was lucky enough that I was able to go out and meet these people. And I also have crisis experience from previous work that I've done. So being able to be in that environment environment and just be conscious of and hear those stories and be able to internalize them was it's huge and I think it's there's such a barrier between you know refugee not refugee oh that's them and this is this is me I'm not like that when in actuality a lot of the refugees that are are fleeing the war right now they're they're just like anybody walking walking down the street in London they're educated they're amazing beautiful people because there actually is no barrier in that respect like uh, refugees come from all classes like quite often when we think of uh, people who are migrants for whatever reason we think of poor people who should definitely still be treated like they're the same as everybody else because they are but uh, at the same time, this, this gulf that we think between our lives and the lives of these others that come to our, our shores is, is, is not there at all very often with refugees. I mean, that's one of the shocking and terrifying thing about, you know, some of the stories that were told at our, at our night were sort of people who are, you know, just, you know, someone who was a teacher one minute and then, you know, being tortured the next. And that yeah. is... is is not separate like my brother's a teacher uh my my sisters were teachers so i mean it's 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 not far from my life in any way no and and i'm a big advocate and i've i've been involved in different political movements over the years but i'm an advocate for the little change that you can do in your life it starts with self-education if a person can take and they can educate themselves it doesn't matter if you're making a donation it doesn't matter if you're out there volunteering on the front lines the most important thing I think an individual can do for any sort of social change whatsoever is just educate themselves and coming from the states for me I feel like here in Europe there is a lot more of that initiative to be educated and I think because the the media is is very different that in Europe, people are exposed to a lot more than they are in the States. But I think the States is really struggling with that aspect of just general knowledge, which I, I do through my work with my writing and my blogging. I put it out there and my stories out there just to say, like, I'm just a normal person, but I'm just taking the initiative to learn and try to figure out who these people are and hear these stories. And I've been lucky enough to be able to inspire some other people to get up and make change, too. And I think that's the most powerful thing. When, and no matter what kind of change you're trying to make it's just the education aspect of it and putting yourself out there and being brave enough to have the confidence to say this is what I believe and this is what I want to do and I think the states has a really big hurdle with that individually with the the individual that's I mean it's interesting that you say that I I don't I don't I, I can't speak for the states but I think Europe's an interesting place. There's lots of like bubbles, right? And there's yeah. loads and loads of people within the UK who are as restricted, I'd say, within their media consumption as people in the, the States who, who, who don't have any access to the idea that refugees might be human beings. Yeah, might be um, actual people. I had a great thing. I, one of the things that I've realised, though, about... So I do a mommy blog, and I've been mommy blogging since uh, 2009. 
So it was kind of part, part of one of the first big waves that existed in the States uh, with Tumblr. Because my blog is, it's a, it's a Tumblr-featured blog. So if you go on and you create a new Tumblr account, they recommend different genres. I'm one of the ten on the mommy blogging side that they recommend. Right. So because of that, I get a consistent influx of new readers on onto my page all the time for years now. And one of the things I realized, though, that I got so frustrated with is anytime I would do anything political people would disappear. <laughs> they right. would unfollow me. They'd stop reading. My ratings would drop. Everything would just kind of become less. And I was trying to understand that. And I've been, uh, for years, I've struggled with that because there's this pull of creating and growing the community that, that you're involved with versus being authentic and trying to put out there. And I just got to the point where I put a post up and I was like, screw it. If you don't want to hear this, then just don't come here anymore because this right. is this is important. And I had one blog follower that um, I never had any interaction with her at all before this. She actually commented on my post about how after reading the work that I had done with the refugees, her and her family there in Minneapolis, they decided to sponsor and help and support a new family, a refugee family that was being placed in Minneapolis. Wow, that's And great. just knowing that those few blog posts that I did, you know, from my bedroom in London reached out and touched, you know, someone in Minneapolis that I, I, I think I've been there like once with one of my bands, but that that right there is is the change that can happen. So if everybody does that yeah. in some form, even if it's just going out and having coffee with friends and talking about stuff that's not your kids, like you know, talking about things that matter, I think there's a huge platform and potential that is being missed on a lot of levels for deeper conversation and things that can just kind of bring the soul into into your life and the work that you do yeah before uh, that we're sort of like moving into the second question uh you've already sort of slightly started to answer it but before we do just to sort of like put the the last note on the on this spark refugee night i mean that's available as a podcast so people should listen to that and that's a way that you can learn what it's like uh for for refugees in fact you know some of the people speaking were refugees uh, and and they're the most important people to speak to although i think people like you are in a kind of secondary camp that's very important of people who've actually been uh, out there and seen what it's like on the ground are very valuable as well but also regular listeners to the show if you want a kind of extra sweetener for why you should donate to that refugee fund matt hill who is the producer of spark london and a long-time friend of mine and has been mentioned on the podcast many many times but has never done it he says he'll do it if we hit our target so uh, if you've heard about matt hill on the show regularly and you've wondered what that guy might be like this enigmatic mysterious man of mystery who I know everybody through uh, but never comes and speaks donate to this fund and uh, you can get him on uh, this show oh, um, I would love to hear a show with him he's go, well, incredible well, he's know, incredible I mean you've already donated I'm yeah. sure but I mean uh, but yeah it would be great well he's, he's he's done so many he's like the man behind so many podcasts like yeah. you know three three or four of, or of his podcasts will be in the UK uh, top 10 iTunes every every week but he, he doesn't come on on mic very often so and he's particularly nervous I think of coming on mic with me because we've we've known each other since we were we were 18 and so uh you know it's it's harder to sort of like to to modulate your persona when you're speaking to someone that you're uh, you're very close friends yeah. with for lots of years <laughs> so uh it could be a really interesting interview everyone so uh that's an extra sweetener but that's not the main reason to donate to the refugees so yeah the second question i ask everybody uh is what do you do now oh that's kind of a loaded question <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right um so <laughs> I got involved, I was in the music industry for a decade. That rolled over into me working in music tech. And then when I came to the UK, I started working in advertising for a bit. And I worked with uh, one of the biggest advertising agencies in the world before I realized this is not where I want to be or what I want to be doing. So then I went and worked with a smaller agency, which last week I just left to follow more creative projects that I'm working on right now, specifically within um, tech and blogging. So I'm launching, helping launch a mobile app that's coming out this summer that is potentially going to be a really good uh, revenue source for content creators, so people who make podcasts and blogs and anything creative on the storytelling front. Oh, I'll look out yeah. for that. Yeah, can't say Could too do much. Could do with some revenue sources. <laughs> it's good. It's it's good. I can't it's it's kind of like this big mystery thing right now. Can't say too much, but that's the next 3 months up until that release is what my life is going to be at. Kind of in like a crossroads though between pursuing, I mean, agency work is kind of can be really mind-numbing. Um, I still am working on a couple projects with a couple agencies, but trying to bring a moral stance into it. So, uh one pitch that I'm working on currently is is with a big company that uh, it 
they make supplies for baby bottles. So bringing in the refugee aspect into that and seeing where I can kind of infuse a little bit of um, good work and positivity into the big, nasty world of advertising is kind of a, a new mission right now. It's an interesting uh, two things to, <laughs> to fuse together. I, 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 I very much hope you achieve it. I think it's a tough one. It is. <laughs> and advertising in general, like, I, ha- I hit a big hurdle when I came here because... I worked in the music, I ran a record label for 10 years, and the music industry is infamously sexist. Like, it's, yeah. it's just, you know, the stories and everything. But I think it's kind of been turned on its head in a lot of ways, because in the music industry, when I was working in it, if something sexist happened, I just needed to yell louder, and it would fix it. Like, you know, I literally have had screaming matches with, like, club owners saying, like, whip it out, whip it out, I got a bigger one, let's do it right now. Like, and... The sexism kind of, while it still existed there, because it was a conversation, even sometimes an aggressive conversation that would happen. An aggressive conversation, so an an argument. Yeah, many arguments. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, over the years. You know, I never kind of sat back and let my gender disqualify me or even qualify me for particular things within within that industry right i find it here though it's it's even worse than advertising which was completely shocking to me because it's a, a lot of closed door there's not a lot of those conversations that can even happen it's just a lot of the closed door deals that happen between the good old boys in the advertising industry and it's it's been a real eye-opening thing because i've never i've always struggled kind of with the the term feminist and right. I've, I've never... One of my friends who um, was actually the producer on a documentary that I was the lead subject of a few years back, she is classic, old-school feminist, standing up, breaking the glass ceiling, doing all those kind of good things. And we would get into these conversations, really deep conversations, where I'm just like, no, I don't even want to have that conversation because that's bringing me back. That's reversing it. That's, I feel like that's against it. I don't... You know, in the industry that I'm working in, in the music industry, if we even talk about those certain things it's just kind of giving it credit but now coming here and working in advertising i'm realizing i'm like oh my gosh those conversations need to be happening right and people need to be held accountable and it's it's really interesting just between the countries and the different industries to right. see and kind of get uh, empowered again so i'm still struggling with the world word feminist right but i'm identifying it with it more than i have at any point in life <laughs> well i think a lot of people I uh, struggle with the word feminist for loads and loads of different reasons coming from loads of different points of view. So, I mean, I think that's probably a healthy thing uh, to struggle with words because it means you're constantly reevaluating why you support something or how you support something or what yeah. that thing means. I think a few years ago I would have found it hard to define as a feminist because I'm a man and uh, I feel like I, I would have felt like then at least for definite that it wasn't a man's place to be involved in that. I I believed in feminist goals but I thought that men had no part in that now I would define as a feminist regardless of that because I think that that everyone's hurt by patriarchy and uh, if you want to kind of move forwards everybody has to be involved not that men should necessarily be leaders in feminism that's a different argument but now I'm a bit more sort of nervous about defining as a feminist because of all of the flaws in certain branches of feminist feminism that I'm now much more aware of. Yeah. So like now I know that it's like a much more complicated thing. It's like I don't want to be seen as that kind of a feminist or this kind of a feminist or, you know, there are certain kind of problems uh, that feminism kind of uh, is a kind of white woman's game to a certain extent. It's, yeah. it, there's a lot of like people who are worrying so much about gender that they're not looking at race or whatever, you know, other the thing uh, I don't want to fa- have is I just don't want my daughter to face the same challenges. She's six now, and I'm just looking forward. And she's getting she's getting involved in entertainment herself. She's um, she's started a little acting career at six, <laughs> and I actually am starting to think like you know what is she going to be faced with? And this, when I get into a situation, that's kind of always in the back of my mind on how can I make this better in the future for the next you know the next generation if if something that's unacceptable goes down or. Yeah, it's it's definitely an inter- internal like struggle I've been having since moving to the UK. Right, and having a daughter will, you know, as you say, exacerbate a lot of that. I mean, if you so like one of the things that you've done is you've been a, a, a as you say, a, um, I'm going to say it wrong because I'm UK based, but <laughs> a, a mum blogger, a mummy, a, mo- a mommy blogger, yeah. blogger. Uh, um, I, that's not an uh, against. Uh, I'm pro uh, Americanisms. I'm just not very good at uh, <laughs> using them. 
And, like, so I guess that's an interesting thing in that you've been in public as a mum. Your your daughter's been within the public realm, right? And you've had to, I guess, make some decisions about how you yeah. do that. Yeah, we were the lead subject. Uh, my family was the lead subject on a documentary film, a full-length documentary that came out in 2000... Well, it came out in 2013. Right. Uh, called Parents of the Revolution. And it was about a group that I had founded that played part uh, within Occupy Wall Street. So bringing in and empowering families with children and parents specifically to get involved with the movement and stand up for what they believed in because there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of stereotypes around like protesting especially in the states where the cops have no fear in beating people that it's dangerous and you know scary and it's no place for children and cops have no uh, fear in beating people here either they just have less 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 uh, media coverage weapons to use (laughs) yeah so we we founded a group in 2012 and it engaged parents and it was it was really successful went head to head with Mayor Bloomberg on a sleepover that we had. So I organized this family sleepover at Zuccotti Park. This was before the tents went up and before it got really scary. We had 500 families that came out. And the first night that we were actually supposed to hold the sleepover, that was the night that Bloomberg called the cleanup of the camp. And I was like, oh, this can't be for our group. This can't be happening. So at four in the morning, I call off the sleepover finally. I just waited to the last minute. It was supposed to be the next day. 4.30, he calls off the cleanup. So I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's how this is going down now. Because originally the movement was, it had a lot of stereotypes around it of just being like rich college kids sitting in the park with their MacBooks, which it wasn't what it was. It was very multi-generational. A lot of people that were there for various reasons, everyone from um, students up through to unions to uh, elderly groups, they, they had come out and there was a lot of conversation and just magic that was happening around Zuccotti Park. So I took this group and I when I realized that it was just Bloomberg going head to head I was like all right this is happening next Friday it's going down and it was a great night it was an awesome night 500 people uh, came out and the coverage that it got across the world and it really shaped the future of Occupy at that point because it switched it from being like a rich college kid problem to oh gosh here's actual families that look like you and me they have a brownstone in Brooklyn you know (laughs) like they're coming out because they have issues that they're struggling in, in, in the city and they had problems with the country that they wanted to be vocal about. So, Well, children make it, make it a different proposition as well, how you deal with uh, uh, people that you decide are, are, are people that you want to move out of an area. Like, it's, it's, it's not a good look for the police to be grabbing the children. Uh, oh, no, no. A, and, it, and there, but that can go both ways. Like, yeah. We had a lot of judgments sent on us that we were right, using kids as shields. Yeah. And... We weren't using them as shields. Granted, you could see when we did a march and a lot of a few of the marches, we had our group led with our children. And it just brought a different energy to the protest. Everybody was calm. The police were calm. The protesters were calm. They were respectful. And it just, I think that having that multi-generational aspect to any kind of protesting or any kind of like movement in that sense is so important and so vital because it can get caught up between just being the police against the protesters which is not what it's about that's not how you get your message across that's just totally distracting from what the actual change that you're trying to influence well, so so, I, th- well I think having children there as well it make, makes an interesting dynamic within the protesters like I, 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 I you know I'm, I wasn't in the states I, I haven't been to occupy uh, marches I've been to other marches I've been to some occupations here in there over my life I'm, I like to think of myself as a very inactive activist but I am one sometimes uh, and the thing is that in all of those groups there's a lot of different people and yes. they're coming together in solidarity and they won't agree on everything um, and there can be conflicts within those groups like so, some people want to be more violent than others somebody some people have different attitudes to uh, like you know some people want to damage property some people don't you know there might have been some people at Zuccotti Park going oh I hate that rich kid with the laptop over there oh, yeah, totally, and then the little rich totally, kid, with, kid yeah. with the laptop might be yeah. thinking similar like you know similarly problematic attitudes towards and there's other also people. co-opting that happened too like right. a lot of you know there was a lot of undercover police that we know now who yeah. they are that we didn't know at the time that were causing trouble we actually had a infiltrator come into our group and try to a character shame me where she was trying to start trouble within our own group which luckily we were able to not let happen at the time but it was it was really confusing when it went down and yeah. we again looking back on the perspective now we understood we understand now what was happening but being involved in that group specifically um put me and my family kind of on the mark publicly right. for a long time i was getting a lot of horrible emails and voice calls and threats and it was it was a mess. Um, my daughter 
we had we had her in a school and we had it very very private um we even went as far as using a different name and right. just kind of being really protective of our family because there was a there's a lot of scary people out there and when you put yourself in the pub in the public eye you, you know you're kind of asking it for it in a lot of ways not asking for it but you have to deal with that that's right. part that's part of the game it's but, it, but then it's it. a different proposition putting your child in the public eye than yourself um, yeah, but I mean, also like that's what I mean. I, I mean, like having children at protests to, to sort of like finish that thought. I was sort of saying I think that's actually a way that can bring people together. It can remind people that we're all human beings. We have to. We've got collective responsibility for looking after these little children oh, who are walking completely. around. And I think that sometimes I feel like it's definitely protests which aren't intergenerational that don't have children. Those are the ones I feel properly scared at. Yeah. Uh, the ones that have like intergenerational situations. Yeah, it means you're safer from the police, but it also means you're safer from each other in a weird way. Although, it, yeah. although it is a dangerous environment to bring a child into. It's a dangerous environment to bring them to is. Oxford Circus, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. with all the yeah, tourists. Absolutely. Like it's, you you have to weigh, you know, what are the pros and the cons. And one of the things that we always told people was like if you're going to come out and protest it's not a matter of just oh come out and bring your kid it's you need to do it safely so we travel in groups we always spoke to the police chief before we were there so that they knew exactly where we were and where the children were we had uh symbols these yellow balloons that we used to carry that the police the nypd were made aware of that that was the symbol that there's children within a group so that there wasn't any aggression and if you couldn't see the kids because they were tiny so we went about it safely, is the thing. I think that's the difference with, with having children out and about. You have to be smart in what you're doing. It's because it affects more than just you. But yeah. it is safe. If you, if you approach it in the right way agree, and put yeah. the right safety nets in and communicate with everybody that's involved, then it can be safe. And it can be so much more moving. And also it's educational for the children, too. Right. I mean, these kids that were with us in this part of the group, they're best friends for life. And they miss it because no one is protesting anymore. They they miss going out. They miss being together. They miss they they get empowered. Um, there's this one girl Shay in the film, who in the beginning of the film she's very shy, and she's a wonderful artist, incredible cartoon artist. She's gonna go really far in her life. She's so talented. In the beginning of the film, she's so shy and like doesn't really have a voice. And by the end, she is this like awesomely inspiring strong woman at like <laughs> 11 it was quite incredible to see the transformation over three years and just kind of see how if you give children a voice you don't it, a lot of people say it's like we're forcing our opinions on them but it's not we're just giving them the platform the stage yeah. to say what they want to say and they find that so empowering uh, well, yeah, I mean, people tend to forget that children are Our not people. outside of society <laughs> and, and, yeah, have opinions. Of their own. And their own thoughts. Um, and that's definitely a problem. I mean, I, when I think about children, in, I think of them as, as like one of the most uh, dispossessed kind of power powerless groups yeah. within society uh, and I've, I feel very f sort of frustrated that they have very little say in how their own lives are going uh, certainly we shouldn't uh, hide them from the realities of society we should like let them know what's going on and they can make their own decisions yeah yeah I'm I sure you're your kids would have told you if they didn't want to be at the protest as oh, well. Oh, completely. I mean, the first word that my kid read was there was, <laughs> when she was three and a half, a skywriter wrote Occupy in the sky when we were walking to the grocery store. And she looked up and goes, Occupy. And I was like, oh my God, you just read. <laughs> like, <laughs> and she, she always was so excited to go out and get involved and just, you know, children are affected by the energy around them and if you have an a group of really inspiring wonderful kind-hearted people they're going to feed off of that and they're going to want to be around that so. right and were you um were you a mum blogger at that time before that before yeah, that i was i started in 2009 and um occupy really didn't start picking up until 2012 so right I was, and I tried to blog throughout that experience. Um, I've been in, inconsistent over the years with my blogging, uh, just for various reasons, because I, I was going through a fir my first divorce at the time, and it's that creative energy and harnessing that when you're dealing with so much is sometimes uh, it's hard to maintain that. Right, and so, deciding what to show as well if you're going through quite a traumatic process. Yeah. That, which is not to say you don't choose to show some of that, but it's deciding what you show, what's appropriate to show for your exactly, child in yeah. the future, all of that stuff. Yeah, because it is shaping. Everything I put up online is potentially, it's, it's leading back to her, you know? I mean, she, she has her photo, her image is out there already. And then, but then again, you know, there is a picture of her when she's like three on the film cover, so it's not like... 
no one's gonna be walking down the street in 20 years time and be right. like you're that little baby on the phone of that film cover like no so <laughs> there is a little bit of an anonymity anonymity there you go yeah, but, yeah. Uh, i oh. didn't say it right either so. <laughs> goes along with um children being public there is a certain amount of that that happens too so no sure and I guess, so you, so you sort of slightly changed how you were placing her within public after that documentary went out then? Is that um, what you, not necessarily. That what I kind of, we kind of, <laughs> I took a step back in right. general from everything, doing things publicly. And because, so after Occupy blew up, then uh, Hurricane Sandy hit my neighborhood in Brooklyn and it uh, completely destroyed the neighborhood, which is Red Hook, which is right on the water. So Red Hook, Brooklyn, is it's cut off from the rest of the city in the sense that there's no trains that go out there. You can only get to the neighborhood via bus. And in New York, New Yorkers just don't take buses. It's not like London where everybody takes buses. You just, you just don't. So we don't get a lot of people down in that neighborhood. It's very small. Um, the front end of the neighborhood has 2,000 residents. And then we have the second largest public housing development, which has about 12,000 people somewhere in there total. And when Hurricane Sandy came, they completely everyone forgot about the neighborhood it was like help jersey help coney island and red hook was just forgotten about you couldn't even get an ambulance out we had a guy that was having a heart attack and i asked a cop that was there and he was like i just tried calling an ambulance 45 minutes ago for this guy and i can't get anything and it was just it was insane what happened we were just completely forgotten about there was nobody there no red cross just no one for almost two weeks so having my organizer experience I went in to local community center. I saw a tweet that they were meeting up, Occupy was, and started organizing. And within two days, we were feeding over 1,000 people twice a day. We had a kitchen set up. We had resource center. We had two warehouses. It was insane how quickly it all happened, to the point that we were taking care of everything so well in Red Hook that the day that the mayor's office showed up and the day that the National Guard showed up and the Red Cross and everybody, they all sent them to me and uh, my friend Polly Ann were kind of acting as the central point of the organizing. And I was just like, I don't know what to say to you guys right now. <laughs> like, we're handling everything. I was like, do you have a doctor? And we couldn't get a doctor for three weeks. Um, my friend Matt, who was a uh, medical student at the time, he completely treated the entire neighborhood to, like stop people from dying it was ridiculous the, the experiences that he had um and he was worried about losing his license before he even had it um so we had a meeting at my loft i was just like okay well everybody's asking and i was like paul ann's texting me and i was like let's just meet up at seven so we had this meeting with occupy wall street and the head of the nypd the National Guard, Red Cross, and the mayor's office in my loft. And we had them, like, twinkle-fingering. <laughs> and, it, yeah, it was it was a quite... It was a really important moment, I think. And I actually got... I guess you can't really get kicked out of a movement, but I got shunned and pushed out of Occupy after that because I chose to... Talk to the police. Talk to the police. Yeah. I chose to cooperate with the city. Um, but they, they were playing nice as the thing. And they, to, even to the point they gave us permission to set up a camp within the park, which is, you know, they just shut down Zuccotti not too, too, too soon before there. So you have an occupier that's saying, can I please set up tents? That was a huge step for them. We raised the signs for the, the food shelter that said, you know, New York's mayor's office right next to the sign that's, that was Occupy Sandy. Um, and it was a really cool moment, which put me under a lot of controversy from the movement. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if I need blankets, we had snow coming. And, you know, if the Red Cross is going to give me 12,000 blankets for 12,000 people who need blankets, like, I'm going to take the damn blankets. I'm right. going to put my political agenda aside and just make sure that people don't die. And I think that's a lot. That was one of the things that people with the movement really, they struggled with understanding. So um, the deeper I got into it, and there was, there was a whole bunch of, like, uh, conspiracy stuff that happened. And I just kind of lost my faith in the U.S. in general, because, you know, this is Brooklyn. This could happen in Brooklyn. What's going to happen, you know, if a huge natural disaster comes to smaller towns that are hours away? Like, it was just, it was horrible. So that's when I up and I went to L.A. for a year, um, took a break from New York, and then eventually relocated to Europe, because I just, I was just, I was done with it. I was done with it all. And it was funny, because I was going head-to-head with Bloomberg, and then I ended up being on his team. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, we worked together. I'll never forget, um, I got a call from, so the New York Post, they infamously always put out really bad coverage on Occupy. They did everything they could to just hate on them. And I got a call one day from a reporter. She said to me, she was like, so 
I just called the police chief of Red Hook, and he gave me your number, and you're an occupier? So she couldn't understand. And right. I was like, oh, Captain Schiff, I love him. He's great. Yeah. Da, da, da. <laughs> and the reason she was calling is because our neighborhood, they did, this is a few months after the storm, they did a study on crime rates. And all the other areas that were destroyed, the crime rates soared because of looting and uh, theft and just general just chaos. Our area had almost zero crime. It dropped down to nothing. And the police chief, actually, he went out on a limb and he said, when they asked him, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And he said, because we worked with Occupy and we all worked together. And there were so many volunteers on, on the ground and everybody was just trying to take care of everybody. There was no space for crime to be happening. Which is, it was, I think that's such an important kind that, of yeah, that's interesting. thing, yeah, that happened. But I kind of lost my faith in the system and everything, and that's why I, just, I turned to Europe and got out. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, sorry, our system's not, not any better particularly. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, that's, so that's, that's kind of where you got, uh, what you were talking about then in terms of d- dealing with, with, with the, was it San, it's Sandy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Hurricane Sandy. Uh, yeah. Hurricane Sandy. Like that's kind of where you got a lot of your crisis experience, yes. which you used like more recently when you volunteered to help with refugees. Do you yeah. want to say a little bit about how that came about? There was a lot of talk uh, within uh, the groups that I hang out with here about going out to Greece and helping. And one of my friends said she was going, and she doesn't have any crisis experience. So I was like, why don't I just I'll come with you, and we can, you know, we can do this together, and we can just go out and see, you know, offer a couple hands for a week. And I'm really, really thankful that I did because that the, the experience of being able to see a crisis firsthand and then going into another crisis, there's a certain level of, I don't know, loss of shock. So my friend who came back when we came back from London, she was really kind of upset and very like, she didn't process it very well. Meanwhile, I was able to just kind of focus on like what needs to be done when I was there. So I think there is a value when you do go through a hard thing, like a natural disaster, I think there is a value that's gained in a potential to be able to go out and help because there's less shock and more experience with just being able to say, okay, what what do we need to do now to save lives? And that's really what it was when I was on the ground in Greece because this particular island I was on was called Leros and it wasn't that they would come off the boat and get directly onto the island. There was a military island that the refugees would get locked up on and like essentially a big outdoor cage for up to four days. So by the time that they actually made it onto the island, they were in shock, they were starving because they didn't feed them, they were dehydrated, it was, God forbid, if it was raining that week, just they were just a, a mess when by the time they came out. So thank God we had life support training because unfortunately when we were there, we had to use it a couple times, which I never thought I ever would, but... It's a really um, messed up situation on the front lines when it comes to the Greek authorities. And and I'm not going to say rightfully so because it's not right. But I understand that that country has been under so much stress and so many of their own problems for so long that they're just breaking under this crisis right now. But there is absolutely no reason that when a woman collapses and stops breathing, I have six police officers that just watched me get her breathing again. Like that is... That is not acceptable anywhere. If you're any, no matter what country you're working for, no matter what city you're in, you know, if you are a law enforcement professional with that training, I think you should have to use that just morally. So, yeah, it was, I'm thankful for the experience. I was thankful that I was able to go out and help. And I have, like, friends for life now. And it's, has it helped my uh, perspective on feeling comfortable where I'm living? Not at all, but... (laughs) I don't know. I don't know where's next. Where do you go? If you go from the States, then you go to Europe. Where do you go next? I don't think... A sailboat in the middle of the ocean with nobody? (laughs) You know, well, I think unless you you, uh, actively step out of the system in whatever way you can, like, yeah, have your own commune somewhere as, as kind of untouched by authorities as possible pretty much anywhere you are there's there's kind of power systems which yeah. are problematic how you deal with those is different you know will be different in different places because there'll be different circumstances greece at this moment in time is intense to be dealing with not even just one authority it's not just the greek authorities right there's a yeah. lot of different authorities all banging heads it's interesting what we were saying earlier on about how people's lives aren't that different if they're a refugee from people here. I mean, it's absolutely possible that some of those refugees will have been law, law enforcement uh, oh, themselves, officers of themselves yeah. in their countries of origin yeah. before they got to that place where all of those law enforcement professionals ignored their plight. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a complicated one, and for it, sure. It's weird for me. Like, It's just... 
I'm repeatedly seeing, and you know, I know there's a lot of people that do do work with crises or you know with these harder situations professionally, and they're surrounded in it all the time. But the little interaction that I did have through the year of working after Hurricane Sandy and uh, going out to Greece and getting involved in in this crisis, it always comes down to the volunteers. And it can be completely not experienced. You don't need to be a nurse. You don't need to be a doctor. You don't need to even have been out and worked a crisis before. But the people that are doing the, the actual work that is saving the lives are not these big NGOs. It's always volunteers that are just going out there on their goodwill because they want to go out there. And it's it's repeatedly I'm seeing this over and over, which has got me thinking completely different on the on the front of you know when you make donations to NGOs and where is your money going and how is it being used. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely a complicated. Uh, it's definitely a com- complicated landscape to navigate. But I, I have a massive respect for people who do, like you, just get up and go out there and do it and throw themselves into that maelstrom without like properly working out what the hell's happening and then just find their feet when they're there. I think, like you're right, that's one of the only ways that people actually do find their way to do good stuff. At the same time, often, often people blundering in isn't necessarily helpful either so it's I've all, never it's very seen that though I've never seen that that is the argument that NGOs and and people will use of oh don't go out to a crisis don't go here because if you're unqualified you're just going to get in the way I'm sorry like if there is someone who is injured and there is not enough doctors to help them or you know, even just having uh, someone who's traumatized and needs to be able to trust someone to sit down and just be with them maybe not even talk just sit with them and be with them and be present Anybody can do that, and that's not getting in the way. No, no, you're right. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that as well. I mean, actually, I think often the people who do blunder, if, if you like, are often the NGOs who are in some ways thinking, but sometimes when you think, it means that you don't think at all. Like a lot of the time, NGOs go into areas and don't find out the actual lives on the ground, what people need, what people want. Well, I'm they not can't, saying all though. That's the thing. A lot of NGOs, they go in with a mission. That mission might be, you know, give x y and z to x y and z they can't legally their hands are tied they cannot legally help people directly a lot of the times which is it's it's a frustrating argument when you're on the ground i can understand it in a legal sense but at the end of the day if somebody is dying where is the morality come in versus the legality of that action of getting a woman breathing again right (laughs) but also it's the terms of what the help comes with as well a lot of the time ngos and governments when they help, they help on their terms, in their way, trying to make the world be the way they think the world should be, which may or may not be right or wrong. That's a, that's a debate on each particular incident. But, I mean, like, if you're just there to help, you're there going, what needs to be done? Yeah. What can I do? Rather than going in saying, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, and yeah. it needs to be this way. So that's an interesting... So I, I encourage, I completely encourage anybody that... You just just go out and volunteer. A lot of times you don't even need to get involved with an organization. There's so much need on the ground in, in these crises that you could just show up and just fall in line with, you know, uh, something that's being done on the ground. So I'm a big advocate for people just going out and doing it and helping in any way they can. And that doesn't even need, need to be going on the ground out, you know, in Greece. That could be just by organizing within your own community to maybe send aid or send, you know, collect stuff, items for that are needed at that time and just communicate with the right people on the ground. So there's a lot of ways to get involved. Yeah, or even, I mean, in this particular moment, doing everything you can to make the government actually accept refugees in this country where you are. Like, that's the, the biggest kind of obstacle. And obviously, there are loads of people who are happy to give their houses up for refugees to come and live. And I, I've sort of, you know, I, I, I see accounts of those people all the time and they're inspiring. But they can only take people into their homes if people are allowed into the country in the first place. Yeah. And that's a big part of it. It's just never ending. <laughs> it, it, it is never ending. But I mean, you know, doing something like you have about that is, is, is at least a way of acknowledging it. Yeah. Like a lot of people are, ignore this never-ending kind of problems. I think they don't know how to get involved, though. I mean, I see that a lot within, like, the mommy blogging circles. I have a couple mommy blogger friends who ha- I've spoken to and told them about my experience and my story and what, what, how I've helped, and they're just always like, oh, well, I want to do something, but how do I do it? 
I think that's even the biggest hurdle of what what do I do? And it takes energy to to devise a plan and right. you know come up with something. So, well, then there's the other side of that as well as in order to be able to help, you have to have the ability to help, and that means yeah. that you have to be not in a terrible financial situation yourself. You know, you have to have certain levels of privilege to be able to go out and help. I think the internet is free, though. <clears throat> that is the true. internet is free, and self education and educating your friends around you that is free. That's so I always true. go back to that. Of so. I mean, sort of changing tack slightly. One time when you came to a, a, a spark, we were sort of outside the Hackney Attic where it took place, um, and I was having a cigarette like I normally do, and you came up and spoke to me. And we were sort of in front of a Janis Joplin uh, poster for the new Janis Joplin film. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, we, we sort of like vaguely sort of chatted about that, and I got sort of an idea that your childhood... What was your childhood like oh. in terms of that sort of stuff? Well, I grew up um, near Woodstock, New York, and... Um, while my particular family was not very alternative, the environment that I grew up in was. And um, my family worked for the estate that was owned by the manager of Janis Joplin and Bob Dylan and that whole kind of crew. So, yeah, the the band has been a huge influence in my life over the years. You know, kind of just grew up with that environment. You know, Lee Von Helm is kind of a, a huge influence on my life. And I was, it was really lovely. I was able to take one of the bands because I managed a band that was a really big Lee Von Helm fan right. and one time when we were touring through they were from Memphis but we made it up to New York I was able to bring them to Lee Von's studio and they got to play on Lee Von's drum set and it was just wow. like they loved it they loved it but um it was interesting kind of where I grew up because I had a bit of reverse culture shock when I moved to New York City and I still actually struggle with this a lot and it's it's actually coming up bubbling up in my life quite often right now right on the fact that when you grow up in a very alternative open I guess a lot of people say like woo-woo here kind of place. When you go and get exposed to the real world outside of that bubble, it can be kind of shocking about how conservative the real world can be. Yeah. So like, I'll never forget my first experience of going to like a party in New York City and it was quite more civilized than I was used to. And I was just like, what do you mean? You guys don't like get naked and run around in the fields like under the moon moonlight in the summer like what do you guys do at your parties like so yeah. i certainly had this like reverse culture shock that most people are contained very conservatively when they're kids and then sent out in this big scary non-conservative world whereas i had it in in the, the reverse way of growing up in a very loving community very open but it's it, it's so different than the rest the rest of the universe. And that was a rat that just ran by. Yeah, it's a rat. Oh my god, that's a rat. It's right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh rats are nice. Don't worry about the rat. <laughs> the rat is not. Uh, I thought it was a squirrel. Bothered when I was by like, us. No, well, there isn't very much difference between a rat and a squirrel. Uh, they're both beautiful creatures uh, that we should have some respect for. I feel. Uh, although, uh, you know, actually, squirrels are more annoying to me than rats. They get in my life a little bit more. So, I mean, and that was, I guess, a big part of why you went on to become part of the music industry and manage bands yourself, right? Yeah, I, um, I booked my first show when I was 13 years old at this venue in Woodstock, and the town centre doesn't exist anymore. I actually forgot about that, because I went into... I, did, I went to school for theatre, and I thought that was what I was going to do, and I left school early, and I got a really great stage managing position on an off-Broadway show, and then I just... I didn't feel like it was the right place for me and I got pulled into the music industry I was working as a cocktail waitress and this is like at the time like back in like the CBGB days when right. you know when there still was a really strong like punk and rock scene in right. New York that's one of my like you know I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't there but I've read a lot about it ah uh, yeah <laughs> I my my first company so I started my first company when I was 18 and my whole business plan was I took hot girls and put them at rock shows and that was that was about it so it was very successful. <laughs> oh, it was great. I mean, being 18 years old and, like, you know, running this company, it was just parties all the time and went on tour. And that lasted for about two and a half, three years. And it's actually, I'm actually looking back on it now, even though the company kind of fizzled out and I went on to other things, it was successful in the means that a lot of the bands that I brought up, especially from down south, and brought them to New York to do their first performances with, uh, with them, and, you know, this is the early days. This is before, like, YouTube existed. You couldn't just go on and be like, I'm going to find this new band. Like, it was a little bit harder back in those days. A lot of them have went on to become really successful and have some really great careers in the past decade. So 
like to feel like I have somewhat of a good taste in that way of finding new talent. Yeah, that's good. Um, but Although there's a frustration that comes with that too, right? Yeah, I've, <laughs> I, I think there's definitely a reason I've fallen more into podcasts and like talk radio these days. I kind of just burned out after 10 years in the music industry. I just, I, I had enough after touring. I, one of my bands was, they'd become really successful they did a theme song that showed Justified, which is, it's a big show in the States. Yeah. Well, it was, at the, I think it just ended the last season. And that really helped that band and protect them forward. And we did a ton of touring, a lot of festivals, and just like four years of being on the road and doing everything we can to just push these guys out there. And it, it really wore me out after a while. And having a family and then Occupy getting layered in there. And yeah, it was, it was a very tiring time period in my life <laughs> but yeah the growing up in Woodstock and growing up around the industry it's kind of all I ever really knew I mean I was part really strongly part of my music department that was my life when I was growing up in school the funny thing is I can't play a single thing I cannot play music at all <laughs> like I can't keep a beat do you sing no I can't I'm <laughs> horrible and I have tried years years and years and years I tried and I cannot keep a tune I'm I'm horrible <laughs> I used to be part of like my school's marching band and I just faked the entire time like <laughs> pretended like I was playing the clarinet just moved my fingers and I know that they totally knew and just let me get away with it thank thanks thanks to them because that was like such a big part of my childhood growing up I came from a, a really bad family so music kind of became like my my escape away from all of that right and it eventually it grew into my career and then when people would ask me eventually i went on to found a label i founded the first anti-percentage fee-based record label in new york and people told me i was nuts when i started this it ends up nowadays every single label has got some white labeled version of my business model yeah it it, it was all i knew i mean grow up in that environment Went to school, was surrounded in all these artists. I wasn't an artist, never fit in in that sense. I wasn't creating until I found my words and my stories and my writing. I wasn't creating myself. So the next best thing is if you can't do, you manage. <laughs> That's what yeah, I did. Yeah, no, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, music to a certain extent and then that scene was an escape, like, from your family life, right? Oh, yeah, yeah? completely, completely. Um, and it, it was interesting because I actually ended up being an escape from my first really bad marriage, too. Right. I left the industry in 2014, and I guess a, a lot of, like, the question of what am I doing now, it's still very much up in the air right. because you spend your entire life almost working, you know, from 13 all the way up until I was almost 30. All I ever knew was the music industry. And it's it's, again, going that alternative lifestyle. You spend, you know... Four years of your life traveling on the road that's very different than a normal nine to five situation so it's it's again taking my universe being completely alternative and different and then coming here and trying to kind of fit into that box of right. you know real job and like steady stability which is great but it, it is it's a struggle again of going from the not normal to what is quote-unquote normal but then having a, I mean, having a child, though, within an alternative community is quite a, can be more difficult in some ways. Like, oh, it was lovely. Are you kidding no, me? No, I'm, I'm not saying it's not good as well. I'm not she saying it's not great. She has so many uncles. I mean, this kid, the reason she's getting into acting now, I think, is a combination of things. She <laughs> was on stage so to, much yeah. with the bands. She traveled for the first two years of her life with me. So she was used to just being in this creative environment, always being surrounded by people creating music. And then for about, what was it? It was like a year and a half, almost two years. We had the camera crew following us for the documentary. Right. So she, that was just her norm. She didn't, that was more than half of her life at that point. So she didn't know anything now she's different. she's in London kind of going to school, I should imagine. It's kind of a bit boring compared to <laughs> the past halcyon days of when she was four. She loves it. She loves it. She loves it. She loves school, but she has been begging to, to get into acting for about a year now until we, we finally gave in and now sent her to an agency of so that sort. But yeah. I do not regret having her in that environment. I mean, even just the festivals we would play. A lot of festivals, especially in the States, are family-based. You have multi-generations that are have been running these things for, you know, 10, 20 years. So it's, it is a very family-based environment. I mean, not all festivals are like that, but a majority of them are. Yeah. So it was it was great having her in that space, and she, she loved it. I took her on tour one summer, and 
<laughs> she was asking me. Actually, I had a, I had about three weeks off between tours, and I was like, okay, we can do anything you want. What do you want to do? And she was like, I want to go on tour. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> so we packed up the van, and her and I went around on our own little tour, visiting family across the states, and we nice. went to a festival. And it's some of the best like memories that I could have ever had with created with her. Because at that time, it was before my second marriage. It really was just me and her against the world. Like my ex husband was out of the picture quite soon after she was born. So. It was just us, and that was it. So having that environment and that, really, the, the family. I mean, he spends four years on the road with people, sleeping in the same beds, like, around them 24-7. That yep. is a very intimate relationship that you develop with them. And I happened to have that relationship with six men that I traveled with around the world, really. And, yeah, it's, it was wonderful for what it was and the time period in my life. It was great. And I miss it. That's, I mean, fair enough. I can understand why you'd miss that. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I guess you can't, you know, in life can't go, you can't go backwards as such. No. And there's not a sustainability so to that. As well. And there's not a sustainability to that. No, you know, no, absolutely. like, my there's daughter no needs to be going to school now. She needs yeah. an education. She needs, you know, and there is something to be said in the quiet, quieter moments. Now, in the position I'm in my life, it's how do I take that creative energy and what am I putting that into now? Right. Which is where I'm kind of, I'm struggling with. I started about three months ago I started a new community uh, called Blog Authentic and it's a blogging community that focuses on really good content so really great content creators that can be really wonderful podcasts that can be wonderful vlogs or blogs writers poetry whatever it is just people that are putting themselves out there and creating great content because I think one of the things that I'm getting frustrated now over the years of seeing the internet grow is that there's so much noise out there and just so much crap being put out by people it's really difficult to go and find a concentrated place to find something that you want to engage with so yeah Well, that's the holy grail of the internet, a place where you can go and you can guarantee that you'll get stuff that you like that's interesting from all over the place and you don't have to find it. That's the holy grail. I mean, there's a lot of I hope so. That's what I'm working on right now. People (laughs) are searching for it, so I hope you you, you get it. Thanks. So, yeah, I mean, this. So it's been a real pleasure walking around uh, the cemetery with you today. It's been kind of, like, interesting because it's, like, because I'm hearing it through the headphones and sort of, like, it's made it sort of, like, I felt like almost like a ghost sort of, like, walking alongside you, (laughs) uh, like, not really knowing which direction we're going to go each time (laughs) and sort of, like... Uh, not wanting to stop the stop the conversation to go, hang on, should we go round the puddles? And like going, all right, I'll walk for him. But it's been a real pleasure. And the the last question I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? And I guess we'd sort of just started touching on some of that. So maybe you've got some... What, what, where can people find you online? And stuff? So my website is kirbyamore.com. And yeah, the new community is Blog Authentic. And I guess the biggest thing is if anybody has really great content or even just your blog roles, I, interesting thing, I just did a survey and I learned that the average person only pays attention to six to 15 pieces of content. So whether that's you're following six or 15 blogs or a variety of blogs or podcasts, which I always thought it would be more than that. But if you sit back and think, like, what do you, what do you put your personal attention to? That, that makes sense for me. I really am only dedicated to probably about, like, 10 pieces of content that you know continually flows that I want to know and I'm I want to always be up to date on so yeah and they shift about as well depending yeah. on where you're at exactly so anybody that has really good content their reading list or listening list um set on my way because right now I'm being really sensitive there's very limited amount on the, the website available until it starts kind of taking shape on its own but signing up for the mailing list doing all that kind of good stuff to support would be awesome Cool, and you've got a, so you, you're making a podcast and a vlog, is that right? Uh, yeah, so my, well, in reality, my, my podcast I created, it's a blog cast, really it's just talking about what's on my blog, and the only reason I did it was because I wanted to learn how to do podcasting, so right. I kind of like taught myself through just keep putting myself out there and doing that. Yeah, um, which is what everyone should do. If you want to make a podcast, then do, do it. it. Yeah. That's um, how you learn. So unless you're reading my blog or really interested in, like, my life and my kids, you're not going to really be interested in that. Um, What we are developing is eventually I do want to turn Blog Authentic into its own entity, its own podcast, its own um, content. And however that takes shape, I'm not really sure at this point, but that, that will be what it grows into eventually. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's wicked. Well, it's been a real pleasure uh, getting better acquainted with you uh, today in Abney, Abney Park Cemetery. A couple of years ago, I recorded a 
video here for stand-up tragedy like we were doing a crowdfunder that year and uh, we recorded our, our video in, in in this cemetery so i have I've also been sort of like keeping on going oh i remember standing there doing this <laughs> to a camera when i first came to london as well this was uh, a friend of mine lived in stoke newton so i used to come here quite often and hang out with her uh, and smoke cigarettes um <laughs> And, uh, so nothing's so changed very much. It's all, it's all yeah. It's, it's it's like a. I like being in places which are like a, a patchwork of different memories. But it's been interesting, sort of uh, listening to your memories that are completely not about this place we're yeah. in. Whilst walking through that tapestry, um. So yeah, the last thing that I ask my uh, guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. Thank you for listening. Bye, everyone. <laughs> If you'd like to donate to Getting Better Acquainted, go to www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk, which has a button on it where you can sign up to donate via PayPal. If you listened to today's episode and you thought, what I'd like is to hear Dave talking for around about an hour, then go over to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast and listen to the most recent episode, which is me doing my solo show about my relationship with being a man, which is called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. To find out more about that show and to donate to, towards helping me continue making that, go to www.stand.com mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk or go over to the Stand Up Tragedy website which is www.standuptragedy.co.uk The Stand Up Tragedy website has just had a revamp so it looks bright and sparkling and new and hopefully much more accessible. This year Stand Up Tragedy aren't doing any of our normal variety nights but we are still putting on Stand Up Tragedy Presents events where we showcase performers doing double bills of their full-length shows. We've booked in two of those at the Dog Star in Brixton on the 13th and 14th of July where four of our favourite performers will be previewing the tragic shows that they're taking to the Edinburgh Festival this year. You can find Getting Better Acquainted and any of my other podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher and anywhere else that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. All the things I do are on Facebook so you can find them and like them or friend them on Facebook. Getting Better Acquainted is on Twitter at GBA Podcast. Stand Up Tragedy is on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.